Yeah, and good morning to all of you. Uh, uh, this group, the, uh, you are the overcomers. You have overcome the time change this morning, getting up an hour earlier, uh, the eight inches of snow or so that we have out there. You made it through that too, and, and you're here. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to have a great time together. The passage that we're going to look at this morning, Daniel chapter 7, is such an incredible passage. Um, it is so specific. There is so much there that we're going to try and unpack this morning uh, the best we can as we go through the Word. I think this series has been uh, really an encouragement to all of us. Pastor Jason's done a wonderful job expounding the Word, and it is so relevant to the times in which we live. We feel like we're in a Daniel moment in history where our world is changing, moving away from the authority of God's Word and His will for our life and just kind of going their own way, and we're caught up in it. And so I'm praying that today this message will be an encouragement to you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Daniel 7. I'm going to read it as we go through the message this morning. It's a longer passage, so we'll take it in sections as we go through. Um, when I was thinking about this message, and I went back and I looked at notes when I had spoken on this again, I, I had an interesting story that I thought I'd tell again. Have you ever had a dream that was both interesting and distressing? And sometimes pastors, when you're working on a message, you know, your, your mind's working at night on things. There are stories of pastors who have, you know, talk in their sleep, who told their wives, if I say something good, write it down. I may use it in the message, you know. It's just kind of you're, you're working on that. And so um, I had a story where uh, I had a dream where I had died and gone to heaven. Only in my dream, I didn't know that I had actually died. You know, I'm just kind of in this really beautiful place. It was so peaceful. It was so uh, joyful. It was unlike anything that I had ever seen before. I mean, the colors were more vivid. The fragrances were stronger. Uh, it was uh, more peaceful than anything I had ever experienced. And it was wonderful. I mean, I, I just was enjoying that. And then... The distressing part came when I tried to talk to those that I loved. It was I could see them, but I couldn't communicate with them. I couldn't tell them what I was experiencing. And that's when in my dream I realized that I died and I woke up with a start. <laughs> and I, I thought about it and I thought about, well, God, what are you doing here? What does this mean? Well, I think of Daniel here in the passage we're going to look at. He had a dream. Now, up to this point, Daniel's been the one who's been interpreting other people's dreams. And now Daniel has this dream. And unlike my dream, Daniel's dream is prophetic. In one night, God showed him the course of what he was going to do in human history. I mean, think about that. In one night, in one dream, one vision that he got from the Lord, God revealed what was going to happen in the broad sweep of human history. Daniel's dream was fascinating. It told of five successive kingdoms that would come upon the earth. But it was also troubling. Some of the things that Daniel saw were frightening, terrifying. And he didn't know what all of it meant. But he wrote it down for the benefit of believers, for our benefit, 
that we could see and understand what God was going to do in our world. The book of Daniel teaches us three very significant things. Number one, God is the Lord of history. Now let's take a look at this passage. I'm going to read for us verses 1 to 8 in Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted up from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there came before me, or there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Daniel saw the rise and fall of four successive world powers. And this vision took place in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Now, Belshazzar was a co-regent with his father over the Babylonian Empire. His father, Nabonidus, was a general, and he was actually leading his troops in battle in northern Arabia, and he had left Belshazzar in charge of the capital city in that part of the kingdom. Now, Belshazzar, we know from chapter 5, is the one who threw this, you know, ungodly festival where he mocked the God of heaven, and he would bring out the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. And it was then that he saw the hand writing on the wall that his kingdom had been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and he would be judged that very night. So this dream that Daniel has chronologically comes before that event. This is like 553 B.C., and that time when the kingdom was overthrown was 539 B.C., so about 14 years between here. Daniel... Um, is writing in a thematic order, not a chronological order at this point. And he has some things that he wants us to note. As a side comment on Babylon, the city of Babylon was considered impregnable. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that 
the walls of Babylon were 15 miles on each side, so 60-mile circumference. They stood 300 feet high, 80 feet wide. Chariots could drive on the top of the walls to their defense in any place. Uh, he tells us that there was a moat that surrounded it, and they had huge stores of reserves, food that were built up and stored within the city so they could withstand any siege. In fact, when the Medes and the Persians came against them, they kind of mocked them, like, why are you guys wasting your time, you know, sitting out there? Nothing's going to happen to us. No enemy had entered the city of Babylon in over a thousand years. But God said it would fall, and it did. In his vision, Daniel saw the four winds of heaven, which are also mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. And there, there are four mighty angels who have control over the four winds of heaven. And here what happens is these four winds of heaven, they represent the judgment of God that is about to come on the earth, and they are stirring up the great sea. Now, in Scripture, the sea is a symbol of our world, of the chaos, the confusion, the depravity, even all the things that we see in this world that are fallen, evil. Um, the sea to people at that time and still today was mysterious. It was deep. It was uncontrollable. It was something that, you know, soldier, I mean, uh, sailors respected and feared. And so here is this sea that is being churned up. And we tend to think of it being the Mediterranean Sea because they're in that area, that part of the world, but it doesn't have to be. What Daniel saw was just this picture of the sea being stirred up. It's interesting in Revelation 21 when we read about the new heaven and the new earth, there's no sea. There's no longer a sea in heaven. All of the chaos, all of the confusion, all of the evil is gone. And so here we see this sea is stirred up, and then what happens is out of the sea come four great beasts, each different from the others. The vision that Daniel saw parallels the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, the dream of that statue with the head of gold and the chest and the arms of silver, the belly and the thighs of bronze and the legs and the feet of iron and toes of iron and clay. It's the same flow of history that we're going to see in this dream that Daniel had. So the lion with wings like an eagle is Babylon. What's interesting is archaeologists who have gone to the ruins of Babylon have noticed that in the Ishtar gate, the main gate leading into the city, there were images of lions with wings. The lion was the king of the beasts. The wings represent speed or swiftness, and it conquered with power and might and speed as it dominated the people around it. But notice what happens to it. The wings are torn off. Babylon is going to be humbled. And then there's this reference about it standing on the ground like a man, and the heart of man is given to it. It's a picture of not only what would happen to Babylon, but what would happen to Nebuchadnezzar when in his arrogance he thought that he was the one who had done all of these great things, that he had built Babylon and made it one of the ancient wonders of the world. 
when it was God who had put him in that position for a time. And remember how Nebuchadnezzar would be banished, driven from his throne for seven years. He would live among the beasts. He would live like a beast until he acknowledged that heaven rules, that there is a God in heaven who rules over the affairs of men and nations. And when he acknowledged that, his sanity was restored and he came back to his kingdom. The second beast is a bear that was raised up on one side. It is like the chest and arms of silver in Daniel 2. It represents the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. Again, Belshazzar in his pride thought it would never happen. Has this drunken feast that's going on. And what was going on outside of the city was that the army of the Medes and Persians had diverted the Euphrates River that ran under the walls of Babylon. They had diverted it to an old channel causing the water level to go down. Enough that the Persian army could enter the city and take it from the inside without a conflict at all, without having to breach the walls. They entered into that city, and that very night it fell. Why was this bear raised up on one side? Well, the Persian element dominated the Medes. The bear has three ribs in his mouth. What does that represent? It represents the three major conquests. They conquered the Lydian kingdom in 546 B.C. They conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And they would conquer Egypt in 525 B.C. The third beast is a four-winged leopard with four heads. And this is Greece. This is now the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great and his army would conquer every kingdom from Macedon, northern Greece, all the way across Asia into India. Staggering, that's unbelievable. In 11 short years, he would lead his army. He wanted to make Babylon its capital. But what happened was that Alexander got malaria and he died in 323 B.C., he was a young man still at that time when he passed away. And his kingdom was divided into four parts. Those are the four heads, the four rulers. Greece and Macedon would be one part. Asia Minor, Turkey, what modern-day Turkey is, that would be another part. The rest of Asia going over toward India, a third part. And then Palestine and Egypt was the fourth part. The fourth beast is unlike any predator known in the wild. It, it couldn't be named. It, you couldn't pick a wolf or you couldn't pick, you know, some other creature that was out there that would represent it. It was terrifying. It was very powerful. With its teeth of iron, it crushes all others by its military power and oppression. Who is this? Oh, this is Rome. This is the Roman Empire that came to dominate that part of the world after Greeks. And in chapter 2, remember in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw this rock that was carved out of the mountain, not by human hands, but by God. It was carved out 
and thrown down upon the legs and feet. And it became this great mountain that filled the whole earth. What was that? It was the kingdom of God that entered the world in that era of the Roman Empire in the person of Jesus Christ and the birth of the church. And it would grow to become a kingdom that would fill the whole earth. I mean, we're living in a time when we continue to see the advance of the gospel around the world. We see God's kingdom growing. But it is a spiritual kingdom now. It's not a physical, political kingdom. But one day when Christ returns, he will establish his kingdom upon the earth and we will enter into that millennial reign of Christ. So here we see this fourth beast. It is Rome in that period, but what will it look like in the future? We don't really know. Some expect that in the last days it will be a revived Roman Empire. Others think it may be different than what we expect. And if I could make this comment about biblical prophecy, this might be helpful at this point. That in interpreting biblical prophecy, just like with parables, we should look for the main point and not try to press all of the details. What I mean by that is when we look back on biblical prophecy, like we do in the book of Daniel, Daniel was written in the 500s B.C. Uh, it records these events that took place, like with Belshazzar in 539, so it was probably written sometime after that, maybe around 530 years before Christ, but still before the Greek Empire and still before the Roman Empire. When we look back on history, we can kind of see what those details were. Okay, now I understand why the bear was raised up on one side or why there were three ribs in its mouth or what this meant when it talked about Alexander the Great and the four heads on this leopard that conquered so swiftly. But when we look forward the other direction, we can't be as certain. We don't know what God may do. You know, what are the ten horns? We believe it will be a ten-nation confederacy. Some, in earlier years, were thinking that might be the European Union. But then more than ten nations came into the European Union. And so some wonder, well, what, what's going to happen there? And who is this little horn? Well, it's the first mention of the Antichrist in Scripture, but we don't know who that person's going to be. I mean, there have been many little antichrists in history. You look at characters like Nero or Stalin, or you look at Hitler and what they did and tried to do in dominating the world. But they were just little antichrists. They're in the line of this one who is to come, but we won't know him or the world won't know him until he is revealed in fulfillment of Scripture. That little horn is the man of lawlessness that Paul wrote about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. It said there that he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And it will not be clear who that man is until that day. Well, secondly, we see in this chapter that God is the Lord of nations. Let's take a look at verses 9 to 14. 
As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen. God is the one who raises up rulers and who brings them down. Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, he said that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princess to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Paul would say in Acts chapter 17 that from one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God is the one who determines the boundaries of nations. He determines the times in which rulers come to power and leave power. God's the one who determined that we should live in this community, this area, at this time and in this generation. And he did it so that we might come to know him and as believers then make him known, that we would join with him in the work that he is doing around the world to advance the gospel. There's a reason you are here. There's a reason that God made us and he made us for his glory. You know, when I think about the rising and falling of nations, um, I have a book in my library that is called Vanished Kingdoms, written by Norman Davies. And he tells the story of more than a dozen kingdoms in Europe that are no more. And at the time that these kingdoms came to power, I mean, they thought they were going to last forever or at least for hundreds of years. But they have names like this, like Tolosa, Altclude, Burgundia, Aragon, Litva, Byzantium, Borussia, and others. They are no more. They pass from history. Their leaders are gone. 
And the same thing could be said about the Americas, about North and South America. I mean, we hear some of the stories about the Incas or the Aztecs or the Mayans, the Almecs, the Mississippians, but they're kind of mysterious people because we really don't know that much about them. Uh, we see the evidence of their existence from archaeology and things that have been discovered. But it's another evidence of how kingdoms rise and fall and are no more. And one day God will vanquish all evil worldly powers and he will establish his kingdom on the earth, a kingdom that will never end. In verse 9, Daniel saw the throne room of heaven. Can you imagine that, seeing this throne room of heaven? And the Ancient of Days came, and he took his seat as ruler and judge. Who is the Ancient of Days? It is God himself. And look how he is described. His clothing is as white as snow. His hair is as white as wool. He is holy, awesome, and powerful. His throne was flaming with fire. What Daniel describes here is very much like Ezekiel's vision. If you read Ezekiel, and when he sees the glory of God, he sees this one who is awesome and terrifying. Thousands upon thousands of angels attended him. The court was seated, and the books were open. The books that record everything that a person's done in their life. And there is a book that is called the Book of Life. And that book was open. And we see this scene in, that John describes in Revelation 20. Similar scene. Court was seated. Books open. The Book of Life is opened. It is the great white throne judgment. And when that book is, of life is opened, if anyone's name is not found written in the Book of Life, they are cast into the lake of fire separated from God for all eternity. The great white throne judgment is not for believers. Those who have come to know Christ will not be present at that judgment. There's a different judgment for us, but it is not for salvation. It is the bema seat of Christ where we will stand to give an account for how we have used the gifts and the time, the treasure we have been given. Did we use that for his honor and glory? Did we use that to advance his kingdom? But for those who are here at this great white throne judgment, the final decision will be terrifying. They will be cast out from the presence of the Lord forever. In verse 11, Daniel watched as the little horn continued to boast and defy God up until the moment it was slain and its body was thrown into the blazing fire. It is similar to what we read in Revelation when the judgments of God are poured out upon the earth and rather than repent of their sin and turn to God, people continue to shake their fist at God, to curse the God of heaven even though his judgments are just. And when that time comes, when the beast is finally destroyed, Daniel would agree with John, who shouts, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just 
are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah. The day of salvation has come. In verse 13, Daniel saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And who is this son of man? It is Jesus, the Messiah. He comes on the clouds of heaven. That is something that only God can do. In Scripture, there are references in Psalm 68, Psalm 104, reference to God coming on the clouds of heaven. And here it is Jesus. He approaches the throne, and he is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. Does that sound familiar? Think of his great commission. When Jesus comes to the disciples and says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is crowned. He has given this place of honor and authority and power, and now he bids us go to the ends of the earth. He is going to establish his kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will never end. And one more detail to note here is the way that Jesus is described as one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man. That's the, the term he used more than any other when he talked about who he was. It is a reference in this, uh, to this passage in Daniel chapter 7, and we see both things combined. He comes on the clouds of heaven. He is fully divine. He is the Son of Man who represents us before God the Father. He is fully man. Jesus told his disciples in Mark eleven twenty six that men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. When the high priest questioned him at his trial before he was crucified, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus replied, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I mean, doesn't that just thrill your soul when you think about those things and what God is going to do? And when we see how these things are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, why does God tell us all of these things? It's meant to give us comfort and assurance. We live in the midst of it. We live in this world. We see these movements of history going on and taking place. And we see how it affects other people as well as ourselves. And God wants us to know that no matter how bad things may become, no matter how oppressive or tyrannical a government may be, even if it looks like evil is winning, God is the ruler of all. And one day soon, his kingdom will come and his reign will never end. Be of good courage and trust him. Now what I've been saying so far, um, there's a lot of content here, a lot of things to think about, or maybe it's kind of heavy, so uh, let me uh, throw in a lighter illustration at this point. You know, when um, Pastor Jason is speaking, he often tells you uh, uh, Green Bay Packers stories. Well... <laughs> I'm a Vikings fan, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
put in a Viking story here as an illustration of this. You know, this season, the Vikings had, uh, I think it was eight come-from-behind victories, and some of them were just, you're shaking your head at how did this even happen. If you are a Vikings fan, do you remember the Indianapolis game where by halftime they were behind 33 to nothing? Well, were you still watching at that point, or had you just turned it off? I mean, I was, I was so frustrated. I had been watching it. It was like everything was going wrong. There was nothing going right for them that day. And I just turned it off, and I went to do an errand. And so I'm out, and I'm, I'm going to the grocery store. I get a couple of things coming back, you know. And, and um, I thought, okay, I'm just going to check and see what the score is. And they had scored a couple of touchdowns. And I thought, well, at least they're doing something here, you know. And then I got buzzed again that they had scored again, and I'm thinking... Well, that's interesting. And then I look at how much time's left in the game, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just turn this on to watch, you know, in the fourth quarter, see what happens. Well, it was amazing. I mean, as you know, they ended up winning that game in overtime, 39 to 36. It was the greatest comeback in NFL history. And I was thinking about that. You know, and I, thinking about my emotions and how it changed as you went through that situation. How would you have felt if you had known the score of the game at the beginning? Or even at halftime? Would it have changed your attitude? Would you have felt different watching the game instead of being ready to throw something at the TV or turn it off? Would you have kind of been intrigued and say, I wonder how this is going to happen? It changes things. And I think that's why God tells us how history ends. So we can wait patiently and confidently for Jesus' return. It doesn't matter what the score is like in the middle. Because in the end, God wins. Well, thirdly, Daniel tells us that God is the Lord of our lives. Let's take a look at verses 15 to 28. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked them the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High 
and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And we have looked at much of that as I've tried to explain what the vision was about. So I want you to notice this in this passage. Daniel was troubled by what he saw and what it all meant. And God sent an angel who gave him the interpretation. But notice what he says to Daniel in verse 18. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. The saints will receive the kingdom. And again in verse 21, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints or the holy ones, some translations say, and he was defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and he pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. You see, not only does Jesus triumph, but we share in that triumph because of our relationship with him. The Bible tells us that we are joint heirs with Christ. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Isn't that remarkable? That you and I as children of God are one day going to share in everything that is given to Jesus as Lord of all. Again, in the verses that follow in Daniel 7, 25 to 27, the Antichrist is going to speak against the Most High and oppress his saints. But the court will sit, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. You know, the outline that I have used today is really an outline for the first half of Daniel. When you look at Daniel, we see God presented as the Lord of history in chapters 2 and chapter 7. Same, same flow of history that was real, revealed to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel. In chapters 4 and 5, we see God as the Lord of nations in the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and the removing of Belshazzar. And in chapters 3 and 6, we see God is the Lord of our lives in his protection of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace and in the protection of Daniel in the lion's den. Our God is able to watch over, to stand with his children in the fiery furnace 
and in the lion's den and to bring us through those trials. Do you see why the book of Daniel is so significant, so important? In the course of one night, God reveals to Daniel everything that's going to take place in the flow of human history. It is so specific. It is so accurate that even the critics acknowledge that, you know, it's a pretty amazing book, but they want to say that it was written after the fact, like maybe somebody claiming to be Daniel, you know, about the time of Christ or in the Roman era wrote this book. And that's what made the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery so significant. When now copies of the book of Daniel and copies of the book of Isaiah were found that date from at least the second or third century B.C., well before the time of Christ, before the time of Rome, and they were copies. They weren't, no one was claiming that these were the originals. You see, there's no good reason to deny that Daniel wrote this book in the time in which he lived. And here's the point for us. If God could accurately predict what would take place over the last 2,500 years, do you think he knows what tomorrow holds for you and for our church? And if he is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations, do you think he can handle the things that you and I are facing too? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. You know, many years ago, I came across a story of a retired farmer in western North Dakota. The story was written by his pastor, Richard Ludke. And the farmer's name was Art Wagner. And Art was born in the region of the Russian Empire called Ukraine in the late 1800s. And what was interesting, when you think about what's going on today, uh, Art was, his family was German. And they had been moved into Ukraine because the Tsarina at that time was Catherine the Great, and she was from Germany. And she wanted to make Ukraine more friendly to her, so she wanted Germans to move in and settle in that land, just like Putin has tried to move Russians into Ukraine to make it more friendly toward him. Well, what happened was... In 1917, there was this revolt that took place in Russia where the czars were overthrown, driven from power, Lenin came to power. Art is a child living through, I mean, Art is a young man, excuse me, at this time, living through these circumstances that are going on, and all of a sudden, Germans were not welcomed in Ukraine. He moves back to Germany, but Germany is a terrible place to live in the aftermath of World War I. Inflation is sky high. You basically had to carry, you know, money in a sack because it was worthless. He found a job at a brewery, and the only food he could afford was when he got paid with a loaf of bread and a bucket of beer. His dad had gone to America trying to earn enough money to bring the family to join him over there but they had lost contact. It wasn't as easy to communicate in that time. His mother would die when they were back in Germany, and he tried to contact his father. Eventually, he found out and received word that his dad was living in Canada, 
But he said there were no jobs there. It was now in the 1920s and the Great Depression hit and there were no jobs, but he had heard that there might be an opportunity in western North Dakota. The railroad was being expanded and maybe you could find a place to establish a farm there. And so he made that journey. Leaving um, his homeland, getting on a boat, sailing through Ellis Island, and making his way to North Dakota. The rule at that time was that when you went through Ellis Island at the last station, you had to have five bucks in your pocket for train fare to get where you were going. He had two dollars that had been, he had been given by someone else when he was on the ship coming over, but somehow they let him through. And when he made it to North Dakota, he still had some change left in his pocket. You know, he, he settles down there. He eventually is able to buy some land, build a farm, and have a family. And when Pastor Ludke was talking to him and he looked back on his life, he saw this story of a man who was searching for his roots. Ethnic roots in Germany, but when Germany gave rise to Hitler and the Nazis, he left. He searched for his roots in terms of family, looking for his father. And when he heard from his father, he would make that way to America. But for him, the deepest root of all was his faith. His faith in God, trusting him. It was those disciplines of worship, of fellowship, of sharing with others, of trusting in God's word that sustained him and gave him hope for the future. And those habits of faith work just fine still today, don't they? You know, last fall I read a book uh, by Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth. The book was called Heaven Rules, and it's about the book of Daniel. And she was going through a very tough season in her life, just like all of us did. She wrote this book during COVID, during all of the turmoil going on in our world, during the things that were going on in Ukraine today, the election, inflation, unrest in our cities, all of those things, but she was also dealing with some personal crises. Her husband was battling two forms of cancer and had to go through that in those years during COVID. A dear friend of hers found out just two days before she was to deliver her baby that the baby's heart had stopped beating. Personal tragedies, difficult things, what do you do when it feels like your world is being thrown upside down? Well, the title Heaven Rules came from Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that there is a God in heaven who rules over the affairs of men. Heaven Rules became kind of a, a shorthand note for her that she would you know, put HR, Heaven Rules, on the mirror of her bathroom uh, you know, or she would put it on her dashboard, or she'd put it on a post-it note in the kitchen, or wherever she could see it, HR, heaven rules, heaven rules, heaven rules. For Nancy, heaven rules means that God is sovereign over everything that touches us. He is ruler over every diagnosis and prognosis, over all incomes and outcomes, over the most daunting challenges as well as the most seemingly trivial details of our lives. She would go on to say that God is sovereign over rulers, over nations, over geopolitical affairs in our world. 
He is also sovereign over the events and happenings and the details in our individual lives. It's true, even when the script turns out far different than what we would have written if the pen had been in our hands. Heaven rules. It's not a trite thought. It's not a throwaway line. This is huge. And this is what will anchor your heart when you're being tossed and thrown in the storms of life. You see, life isn't always easy. Life isn't always fair. But God is always there. And whatever you are going through, God can get you through it if you will give him a chance. He loves you and he cares for you. God is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of nations. And he is the Lord of our lives. Let's put our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, these are powerful words. And we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over what's happening today in our world and in our lives. And we look forward to the day when your son returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. To him belongs all glory and praise forever. Father, help us to put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to stand for the benediction today. And uh, if you are in need of prayer today or would like some prayer about something, there will be some the elders and Pastor Barry will be up here at the front to pray with you. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. amen.